And it is great to be back with you this morning. Um, I want to thank you, church, for your kindness in um, granting uh, myself and my family a sabbatical. Um, We were able to certainly uh, travel quite a bit and hit the road and visit a lot of people, but best thing was really just getting for me to spend some time individually even with my, each of my kids, my wife, but most of all with the Lord. Um, and I, I made it my ambition to, during those two months, read through the New Testament and the book of uh, Psalms. And I'm not great at reading fast. I just keep getting sucked into it. And I, I made it uh, probably about four-fifths of the way. So I'm still seeking to finish um, in Hebrews right now, working my way through uh, the end. But um, it was wonderful spending time with, with God. It was also a joy to visit several different churches. We were able to worship with our church family from many moons ago in South Carolina. Um, we were able to worship with you virtually, so that was neat, uh, being up in the mountains after um, officiating Ashlyn Van Pelt's wedding, sitting there and, and, uh, with the family, and, and I loved singing with my family, um, but it wasn't the same as being here, of course. And then when we came back to Niceville, we got to worship with several different churches here in Niceville. And my last Sunday, we, we worshiped with all God's children um, and had just a wonderful time um, worshiping our God with, um, with, this, um, uh, with brothers and sisters of this church in Valpy. And afterwards, um, I was having lunch with, with uh, Pastor Williams, and he asked me, he said, hey, are you, it's been two months now, are you... You know, are you, are you missing preaching? Are you, you got that unction to get back there. And I said, well, actually, I miss the church more than anything. I miss the people. So it's, it's a joy to be back with you. And it is a privilege to be able to bring God's word to you uh, today and on every Sunday. And this morning, as we, as we move into John chapter 8, um, we've been working, uh, if you're a guest, we've been working through the book of John um, expositionally, just working through each, each chapter, sometimes a smaller section of verses. Um, we actually have a challenge this morning, and, and I do want to thank both Pastor Bill and Pastor Robbie for um, doing a wonderful job bringing the Word. Um, before I left, they, they had kind of divided it out, and it was kind of ambitious, honestly. I think they were supposed to get through John chapter 10 or something like that, and, uh, and I remember thinking, man, these guys are going to, you know, they're going to really get this. And then they, re- they looked at it again and said, we're going to actually take it a little slower. And I noticed that they stopped right before John chapter 8, verse 1. And um, there's a, there, it is a bit of a challenge here. And so thank you, Robbie, for that, um, waiting for me to come back for that one. Um, there is a little bit of a challenge. And you may notice here, if you have an ESV or New American Standard, probably an NIV, you'll notice a note uh, and I have to first note the note here before we get into it, that you'll see here above uh, John chapter 8 in the ESV, a note that says the earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through chapter 8, verse 11. So this brings us to talk a little bit about what is called the science of textual criticism. And, and you may think, well, what, what is that? Um, and, and first, let me just say, textual criticism is not higher criticism. It doesn't come from a critical attitude towards the Bible. There, there is that, those who would attack God's Word. Um, but textual criticism is something that scholars have been engaged with for centuries, and it is the study of all of the manuscript evidence uh, for the Bible. In other words, what we see here as we looked at the science of textual criticism, we, we really see God's faithfulness 
in preserving his word, okay, through the actual manuscript evidence that we have today. I've had the chance at the uh, British Museum to actually look at very, very old copies of the Bible. And we have uh, uh, the, the, the church worldwide is in possession of tens of thousands of manuscripts. Some of them are complete copies of the New Testament. Uh, some of them are just pieces of pottery that go back to the, the very first century that have little scriptures etched on them, right? And so the science of textual criticism is, is comparing all of these manuscripts. And it's quite a, that's quite a job, all right? Uh, all these copies because in his sovereignty, God has not given us the original autographs. Now, that would be great if we had those. Now, now maybe we would, um, maybe we would uh, be tempted to almost worship them or venerate them. I don't know why the Lord hasn't chosen. It's probably for our good that we don't have the very first copies, but we do have some very old manuscripts that, that date all the way back to the second century, all right? Um, uh, and and uh, the, the earliest complete manuscript, like complete of the New Testament, goes back to the fourth century. And so there's this, the, uh, let me just tell you that as I have looked into this, and I am not a scholar when it comes to textual criticism, but um, I remember taking an interest in this back when I was in, uh, in college and was studying the Bible. Um, I was just amazed at the agreement and the providence of God, if you think about it, uh, thousands and thousands of human beings have copied uh, old manuscripts. And a lot of these, you know, this is before the Gutenberg printing press um, by hand. And it is incredible when you look at all of this, how the Lord has maintained the purity of his word. Uh, there, there is no other book in the world. There's no other book um, in ancient history. You might think of like the Odyssey or the Iliad. And, and, and there's textual criticism for those books. There are copies and, and there are variants. And so compared to any other book, there, there is no ancient book that has uh, such incredible agreement among manuscripts. And we're talking about 99.9% agreement. Um, but there is a 0.1% disagreement. And so when the, the, what this has led to scholars having to say, and usually it's things, small things like a pronoun in one manuscript is a, is a he, or, and maybe it's a, a they in another, right? Or sometimes it's a number. And, and so it's like, all right, we, we have these differences. How do we figure out what the original manuscript, which is inerrant, right, and inspired, what, what, what is that? How, how do we know? And so there's a comparison. So, so a lot of times um, it, it, you look at, it, a lot of times it might be 95% of these manuscripts. Some have been dug up in Egypt, others in, in what was ancient Mesopotamia, you know, in the, mid, in the in, in Middle East. Um, uh, it's comparing and looking, okay, what is the majority? And oftentimes, what is the oldest? What do the oldest manuscripts say? But there's also internal evidence. So you may look at the context and, and so why, why possibly might a scribe have uh, uh, gone off course a little bit? So there, there's really quite a, um, a lot of work, a lot of scholastic work that has gone into all of this. So the challenge that we have here is that our text this morning does not appear in any copies of John that date before the fifth century. So suddenly in the fifth century you see it appearing in some of the manuscripts. But the oldest ones don't have um, the last verse of John chapter 8 or the ver very first 11 verses, I'm sorry, the last verse of John chapter 7 or the very first um, 11 verses of John chapter 8. 
Um, another interesting note is that the early Greek church fathers never commented on this section, which would be unusual, okay, uh, in that they wrote commentaries and, and wrote about so much of the scriptures. So um, let me just read a note. Uh, if you have the ESV study Bible, uh, let me just read a, the note that you'll see for this section. And it says, and we have it, I think, to, to put up here on the, on the screen for you as well as I read it. There is considerable doubt that this story is part of John's original gospel, for it is absent from all of the oldest manuscripts. But there is nothing in it unworthy of sound doctrine. It seems best to view the story as something that probably happened during Jesus' ministry, but that was not originally part of what John wrote in his gospel. Therefore, it should not be considered as part of Scripture and should not be used on the basis for building any point of doctrine unless confirmed in Scripture. Now, um, I, I also found a quote that I, I, I think is very helpful as we look at how do we approach this story that we have recorded here in John chapter 8. And this is by Dr. Merrill Tenney, who's a noted evangelical New Testament uh, scholar. And he writes in his commentary that to say that it does not belong in the gospel is not identical with rejecting it as unhistorical. Its coherence and spirit show that it was preserved from a very early time, and it accords well with the known character of Jesus. It may be accepted as a historical truth, but based on the information we now have, it was probably not part of the original text. So I, I felt it was important just to address this briefly with you, um, in that you know, you know, you know, you you too would note the note here. Um, I think one of the, one of the um, things that we have to watch out for is we don't want to uh, let something like this uh, lead us into a, a rabbit trail where we start questioning the veracity of Scripture. Um, again, the, 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 the revelation God has given us uh, has been in the original autographs, and He has, by His Spirit, preserved um, this uh, the, the, this writing so well for us such that um, this text right here, whether you have it in your Bible or not, doesn't change any theology, all right? So what I'm going to do this morning is we're going to walk through this story verse by verse, and then I'm going to make some application points for you based on this story, and th those you will find in your guide, but I'm going to substantiate every point from other scriptures, so I am clearly bringing you um, God's Word this morning. So let's, let's begin again in verse um, one, 1 as we just read through this story, which I believe happened. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, He came, he came again to the temple. Now this was most likely the temple's outer court, which was called the Court of the Gentiles. All the people came to Him. And he sat down and taught them. Now, maybe you notice I'm sitting this morning. Um, Chris Treadway was kind enough to point out to me um, verse 2 this week uh, during our, our, our staff meeting that Jesus sat down and taught them. And his point, I don't think, was that we are, that I am normally um, going against um, God's word by standing to preach. That's kind of what our culture our church culture does, but actually in Jesus' day, there are other places where we see Jesus actually sitting down uh, to, to teach, um, standing to read and sitting down to teach. And I will say that actually some of our friends in like the Episcopal churches, the, um, the Catholic churches, actually have the preacher off to the side. 
And, and the reason they do that is they want to make sure that we're looking to God. Now, they, they are sacramental, so they will usually have the sacraments in the front. The idea is you're looking to the sacraments. But their point is by having a preacher and a big pulpit up in front can maybe wrongfully elevate the preacher instead of the Word of God. Now, the reason we do it is the idea is that the Word of God is the, the center, right? And, and I just want to remind you that I'm simply the messenger. Um, certainly what I say, you have to constantly test with the Scriptures, because the Bible is God's revealed word and is the final authority, not, not the man trying to explain the meaning. Um, but the reason I'm actually sitting today is because I am dealing with some back pain. And I've been dealing with this for about a year now. Um, and um, I, I was planning uh, and preparing for a great adventure with my brothers to row across the Atlantic Ocean. Um, they're taking it, that's happening this December, um, but without me. Um, and in the rowing, I managed to re-injure an old injury, and uh, I've been dealing with that for the last year. Um, Lord willing, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping to find some relief in about three weeks, uh, in which I have a surgical date. Um, but um, until then, I'll probably be sitting here. I might get up if I get excited, but um, it's just a little bit more comfortable for my back for me to sit. So that's why I'm sitting. Um, but all the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. We read in verse 3, then the scribes and the Pharisees, they, they interrupted this teaching, right? They brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. Now these, these wicked people, these men, um, who brought this woman, uh, dragged her into the court of the Gentiles um, as Jesus is teaching. They weren't wrong about what the law said about the serious sin of adultery. In Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 22, the Mosaic law, which was inspired by God, this was God's law for his people during that time, it says, if a man is found lying with the wife of another man, both of them shall die. The man who lays with the woman and the woman, for you shall purge the evil from Israel. But let's stop for a moment and think about the perspective of this woman. The, the shame. Here she has been caught, according to the, the, the text here, in the very act of adultery. And so now we see her sin being laid bare before a merciless world. And the fear. So she's been dragged before a bunch of men who are talking about executing her by throwing rocks at her until she's dead. And so we see here in, in, in verse 5b that they've got this woman there and they say to Jesus and in the original language, it's actually a, a real, it's an imperative. It's kind of a, almost a, you know, it's an aggressive um, accusation. So what do you say? It's like they, they actually say, you there, what do you say? And, and they said this, we read, to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And so kind of what they're thinking was, they really thought they had him between a rock and a hard place, because if Jesus said, as they would have expected, because they knew that Jesus sat with and ate with sinners, they knew that he loved sinners and was a compassionate man. 
So if he said, let her go, they, they would accuse him of contradicting the law of Moses and standing against God. But if Jesus said, yeah, sure, stone her, um, they could then, two things. One, they could accuse him to the Roman government for commanding capital punishment, which at this point in history, they were not authorized to do. Only the, only the Romans were allowed to uh, command or ex, uh, capital punishment, okay? So, um, so now they, they would get Jesus crossways with the, the Roman authorities, but even worse, they would really be able to defraud Jesus because they could say, hey, this guy who's talking about mercy and grace, he's a fraud, no real compassion. So they thought they had him. So what does Jesus do in this story? And I find this interesting. In verse 6b, we read, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. Well, (laughs) what is he doing here? What what does this mean? What does this signify? Um, I, I find it interesting that actually this is the only place in the New Testament that we read about Jesus writing anything. So now he's just tracing with his finger on the ground. And you may even ask, and I, I, as I thought about this story, I, I wondered, how did he do that exactly? Uh, when you think of the temple, what kind of ground do you think of? Pro- probably stone, right? Um, and maybe you've, been, maybe you've been to Israel, you've walked in the Temple Mount, maybe you've visited other archaeological sites, and there's a lot of stonework. So how do you write on stone? Well, you know, was he tracing something in the dust? Um, and it's true that the inner courts of the temple Um, had stone courtyards. But actually, it's most likely here that Jesus is in the the larger outer court of the Gentiles. And if you'd like to know what is in the outer court of the Gentiles today uh, in the side of Israel, it's trees, like a whole grove of trees, because it had dirt on the floor. And actually, the, the, the Greek word here that's used for ground is gen, which actually is also translated in other places, like in the parable of the good soil, good soil, or dirt, okay? So again, we think Jesus was in the outer court of the Gentiles, which would have had a, just, you know, a, a dirt floor. And, and so he's using his finger to write something on the ground. So what is he writing? Well, the truth is, we don't know, okay? Uh, John Calvin thought that Jesus wasn't writing anything but doodling on the ground, uh, purposefully ignoring them. Just kind of just showing that, you know, you guys are irrelevant, okay? It, it, turning his back to these, these, you know, their wickedness. That's what he thought. Augustine, uh, one of the early church fathers, actually had, um, had, had something much more allegorical here. Uh, he kind of saw a distinction between the law and the gospel here. He remembered that, that God wrote the Ten Commandments on a tablet of stone with his finger. And here you have Jesus um, writing on the dust of the ground, and where did we come from? The dust. So the idea of Jesus writing the law on our hearts, okay, that might have been a bit of a stretch. Um, Calvin certainly thought so in his commentary. He makes fun of Augustine for, you know, being a little too fanciful here. Uh, others have speculated Jesus may have been actually writing out the Ten Commandments, stopping with the very last one, the Tenth Commandment, which says, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife and convicting them in that manner, all right? Um, my pastor, as when I was a youngster growing up, 
uh, and, he, and I think he may be right on here, although again, we don't know, uh, thought that Jesus may have been actually tracing out some words that would have referred to specific sexual sins of the men who were standing there accusing this woman. Okay? Maybe, a not, maybe just a name, uh, maybe, maybe a couple, something that would tell them he knows. And of course, that would augment well his very next statement. Verse 7, and as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they, they, they heard it, and here the, the KJV actually adds something interesting, being convicted by their conscience, they went away one by one beginning with the older ones, and Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Now, I want to note here that Jesus addresses the woman here with respect and compassion. When we hear that word woman in in the language Jesus was using, Aramaic, that was a title of great respect. It's what he called his mother, if you remember, uh, at Cana. So Jesus now stands up from doodling or writing names on the ground. He stood up and he said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on sin no more. So Jesus here does something profound and something that no other human being could truly do And that is, he forgave her sins. He not only saved her life, but he forgave her sins. Now note that he forgave her sins, but he did not minimize her sin. He commanded her to to leave her sinful lifestyle. Now I'd like to make three application points, and this is what you'll find if you look inside your bulletin. There's a worship guide there. Uh, there's a few blanks in there, just for those of you who are like me, you know, a little OCD, you got to fill those blanks out. Um, well, here they are. And the first is this. We are the adulterous woman in this story. You know, some of the, you know, I read a lot about uh, kind of the, the history of this text and how different people have approached it. And um, some people think, and they may be right, they may be wrong, that the Uh, that this text actually was taken out, maybe deleted by the early church fathers, because they were afraid that it would encourage their daughters to go out and and commit adultery, right? I don't really buy that. Um, I don't think they would have messed around and, 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 and purposefully taken something out of God's Word. But we need to remember this, um, that we are the adulterous woman in this story, right? Uh, Instead of looking out at at adulterers, we need to remember this is us. And the truth is, some of us here have actually committed adultery. Maybe it was before you knew the Lord, Um, but some of us are actually guilty of this um, significant sin. You might be sitting here and you're like, well, I haven't. I have not gone out and um, committed um, sexual immorality with another person person uh, outside of my marriage. But you know, Jesus widened the scope of adultery to that of the heart. In Matthew chapter 5, 
verse 27, he said, you have heard that it is said, it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who has looked at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So if you are of age here, uh, there's nobody here who's, who's not guilty. We, we are all broken sexually. We're all sinners. We have all, according to Jesus' standard, um, from, from our heart, broken this part of his law. But let me widen it, widen the scope a little bit, okay? You may be young here. You may be five, and you're not even sure what I'm talking about, and that's okay, okay? Um, you'll, you'll figure it out one day. It'll be explained to you in detail. But let me tell you this. At the heart of adultery, it's unfaithfulness. And every one of us, even if you're three or four or five or 50, uh, an old guy like me, every one of us has been unfaithful to God. At the end of it, that's what adultery is. It's unfaithful to one that we have given, that we have pledged our allegiance and our faithfulness. And every one of us has been unfaithful to God. If you believe in Jesus, if you're in Christ, the Bible talks about him, the New Testament talks about him as your spiritual bridegroom. Okay, he's the, like the husband of the church. And so have you, have, have I been faithful to him every day, honoring him and, and prioritizing him above all else? Well, I have to admit, no, I have not. I have been unfaithful to him. In, in the Old Testament, we actually see God portrayed as a heartbroken husband mourning the unfaithfulness of his bride, the people uh, Israel, all right, his, his chosen people Israel. So in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 8, we read, and this is a lament that God gives here. He says, she, which would be Judah here, he's talking about the southern tribes here, uh, uh, Judah, saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. And, and the, the, right, the, the understanding here in the context would be God was the, the husband, his chosen people Israel was the bride who had constantly been unfaithful. And so he rightfully sent his bride away with a certificate of divorce. Okay, that's the context. Yet, her treacherous sister Judah, who should have seen that, right, and, 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 and been faithful and repented of her idolatry, yet her treacherous Judah, her sister Judah, did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. Because she took her whoredom lightly, she polluted the land, committing adultery with stone and tree. What he's talking about here is idolatry, okay? Um, his chosen people, Israel, uh, the, the, this, this idea of divorcing, sending her away, that's a reference to the Assyrians coming and, and cleaning house and, 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 and taking and destroying the land, the, the kingdom of Israel in the north, the tribes in the north, and taking them off into captivity because of their unfaithfulness. And so Judah should have, should have seen that and feared and, and, and been faithful to God, but Ju the tribe of Judah also worshiped false idols that they made out of stones and trees. And God says, yet for, all, yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah did not return to me with her whole heart, but in pretense declares the Lord. In other words, they pretended to follow God, but kept going after these idols. But we see here, even in this text, even in Jeremiah chapter 3, God's willingness to forgive. 
His mercy, even in the Old Testament, triumphs and trumps His judgment. He prefers mercy over judgment. And so we see in verse 12 of Jeremiah, he says, return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And so we see this picture of God calling out to His his bride, crying out and saying, come back to me from your wickedness, from your unfaithfulness. Come, Come back to me. We see this pictured in the story of Hosea, who was another prophet. And and very, very interestingly enough here, God calls Hosea to marry not only an adulteress, but but a prostitute. And so the story here, though, is is all about uh, an adulterous bride, Gomer, and and, and a a husband, Hosea, bringing her back and, and, and loving her again and forgiving her of her sin. It was a picture of God's relationship with His people Israel, and God's long-suffering. So we see in Hosea chapter 1, verse 2, when the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. In other words, unfaithfulness. And then later, Hosea takes Gomer to be his wife, and she runs off with other men. In Hosea chapter 3, 1, and the Lord said to me, go again, love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. In other words, the same woman. Love her again, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. We see even in the Old Testament the truths that we read in the New Testament, and that is James 2, 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. So have we been faithful to the lover of our soul, to to the one who gave himself for us? You know, God sees everything. He sees all of our sin, and and I hope that you won't be comfortable with that this week, that the knowledge that God sees everything. Don't, Don't be comfortable with that. We are the adulterous woman in the story. Okay, all of us are in the same boat. None of us have been completely faithful to our Savior. But second point this morning, um, let's not also be the Pharisees in this story. We're the adulterous woman, all of us, so let's not add to that by being the Pharisees in the story. Um, these were wicked people. And, and, I, and I wonder, when I read this story, where is the dude? They bring this woman that they are ready to stone just to try to get at Jesus, right? Where's the guy? The, the, the adulterer, the other one. And, and how exactly did they catch a woman in the act of adultery? That's actually very unusual, okay? People may confess or find out in some way later, but how do you actually catch somebody in the very act, as this story says? And, and I, it makes me wonder if somehow they were even accomplices to the adultery. But behind the scenes, in order to catch the bait for the trap, for their trap of Jesus. Jewish historians tell us that, that long before Jesus walked the land of Israel um, in his time, that Jewish courts had actually ceased imposing the death penalty for adultery. So this whole situation was most unusual. And, and these were hypocrites. In, in the New Testament, 
Um, uh, Paul writes about this in Romans chapter 2, verse 22. He asks the question, and he's asking all of us, but he says, you who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? I think um, Matthew Henry got it really right in this text. He, he, he noted this. He wrote, it is common for those that are indulgent to their own sin to be severe against the sins of others. You know, I've noticed in my life experience and pastoral experience that sometimes and oftentimes, it's the one who is the most critical of others, maybe even the legalist, okay, really going after maybe even smaller things of others, that there's often something that's really ugly under the surface, okay? Oftentimes the one who would be the most obsessed with legalistic type righteousness of others, there may be some really ugly sin they're hiding underneath it all. It's just a, it, it keeps popping up, okay? Well, Jesus warned us in Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, I have preached on this text before. I don't believe this means there should be no courts, no laws, no judges, okay? Um, but what, it, what it's saying is, um, when we point something out, we need to be very careful to look within and make sure that there's not the same category of sin in our own life lurking under the surface. Jesus continues and says, why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, then you will be able to see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So can we hate sin categorically? Well, the answer is yes. It has to be Yes. Should we as Christians stand up publicly, uh, it, it, particularly in this world that, that is just, uh, in our society, which, which in my perspective is just going at warp speed, um, uh, downhill, uh, nowhere good in terms of morality, redefining what God has said about marriage and identity. Should, should we stand for truth? Absolutely. Yes, we should. But we need to do it with love and with meekness. Um, when we stand up against sin in our society, let's make sure that we don't become haters. Let's make sure we don't become like those Pharisees, pointing at stuff when maybe the same category of sin is actually uh, something we're indulging in in our own life experience. Let's remember, as we stand up for, against sin in our society, that we too are forgiven sinners. We too are forgiven sinners. So let's make sure that as we stand up for sin and recognize sin that we see in other people's lives, let's make sure that we're loving them, that we're loving the sinner, and that more than the sin that we hate, we hate our own sin. Love the sinner, hate your own sin, right? Hate your own sin. Look inside the heart, ask the Holy Spirit to show you, hey, if, I'm, if I am uh, speaking up in the public square and social media against homosexuality, let's say. I'm just picking one, right? We could pick a lot of things. Uh, am I indulging in pornography at the same time? Because if so, I'm a total hypocrite, right? Same, same category, let's say. So, so let's hate our sin 
And let's beware of being the Pharisee, hating on other sins while pretending to be more righteous than we really are. Jesus had some strong words for the scribes and the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 23, verse 27, he said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and uncleanness, all uncleanness. So you outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Well, if you know that you are struggling with being a Pharisee, if that's just a a temptation to to really notice everyone else's sins a little too much, maybe, maybe to speak up a little, you know, if you're spending a whole lot more time hating or or pointing stuff out, then you are uh, asking the Holy Spirit to search your heart and to know you, to try you, to, to show the wickedness within and confessing. If you know that's you, let me, let me give you one tip that might help, okay, if you're trying to kill the Pharisee within. And that is, confess your sin to someone else. C- confessing your sins, even the ones that you're ashamed of, and we all are ashamed of some of our sins. We should be ashamed of more. Uh, I'm convinced that we should be uh, far more, we should hate envy a whole lot more than we do. All right, that, that's really, I mean, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And envy is behind so much of our society. I mean, how many commercials are based on envy, right? Um, and we can kind of, there's not the same shame, I don't think, in our, in our Christian culture for envy as there is for, say, sexual sin. So we tend to kind of laugh about the one and, you know, we don't talk about the other, right? But if, if, you're, if you're struggling with any kind of sin, it, it's, it's helpful to confess your sin to someone else. Now, they're not your priest, that's Jesus. Confess your sin to him. And, and, and he'll forgive you and, and cleanse you. But it's good for the soul and it's humbling. If you really want to deal with it, confess it to someone else. James five sixteen says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great powers that's working. Uh, we, we, we remember that last verse, which we love to talk about, you know, the, the power of prayer. It's tied to that Verse before that talks about confession and praying for each other. So finally, um, as we land the plane this morning, let's remember that Jesus' forgiveness is costly in this story. And that's the sermon title, Costly Forgiveness. Pastor Matt Carter uh, imagines in his mind's eye the wife of the adulterous woman's lover in this story. So, I know that's kind of connections. Think about it for a moment. Stop and think. All right. So this woman who committed adultery with another who didn't get dragged in, some guy, imagine that his wife showed up on the scene. And Jesus has just pardoned the woman and forgiven her of her sins. So what if, he asks, what if this wife angrily asked Jesus, what right do you have to forgive her? Did she sin against you? She sinned against me. Jesus could say, quote, yes, she did. Not only did she sin against me, but I will take that sin upon myself. I even will become her sin for her. That's why I have forgiven her. The forgiveness that Jesus gives in this passage, he didn't just wave his hand and say, I pardon you, no big deal. That was a big deal. 
he forgave her by going to the cross for her, for her sin. So in this story, we see Jesus' grace and his forgiveness towards sinners. But let's always remember that the forgiveness he gives us was not easy. It, it wasn't free. It came at a great cost to him. First Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Isaiah 53, 5 says, But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Now, now maybe you're sitting here this morning and you struggle with guilt over sin. Maybe there's a related sin in this category that we've talked about this morning that 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 guilt just keeps washing over your soul. When you hear about it, it's like it's never going to let me go. Well, if if that's you, I want to encourage you to receive his forgiveness. he, He washes the saints white as snow in his blood. Far more powerful than anything that you could do or I could do. His blood. So receive his forgiveness. Receive his forgiveness, but never take it for granted. Never take it for granted. God delights in redeeming and in using sinners. And there's a whole list of them throughout Scripture. I think of Rahab, the prostitute who he used, and and she believed at the end of the day. She was justified by faith. Uh, She didn't have as much to know about Jesus yet, but she knew that there was a true God, and he was on their side, and, and she believed and she risked her life, and she was, she was redeemed and used in the bloodline of Jesus, Christ himself, her Savior. I, I think of Peter, who committed treachery, like treason, with Jesus right there when the going got rough, he denied him. It really doesn't get much worse than that, okay? And yet Jesus redeemed Peter, and he washed him, and he cleansed him, and he commissioned him. To, to be the leader, a leader of his, of his church. I think of the Apostle Paul. Sometimes I think we do forget. Uh, you know, we read his stuff. We, 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 we think about his journeys and all that he sacrificed. But we regret or we forget the, the wretchedness of the man before he met Jesus on that road. I mean, he was a terrorist. If you ask me, that's worse than an adulterer. He was, he was splitting up families and killing people. And, and they were stoning people. And he was watching or participating. Um, he was a wicked man. Wicked man, but redeemed and cleansed and, and used greatly by God. So God redeems and uses sinners, but let, let's not let his grace ever become a license for sin. So thinking back to the category that we've been talking about this morning, I just want to close by reading a couple of verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you turn there with me, um, if you have your Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 18, which says, flee from sexual immorality. And that comes, I think it comes to us from so many directions. I mean, you're just a couple seconds away from it on your phone in your pocket. Right? Uh, in our society today, um, 
there, there's so much temptation. So do what you got to do to cut that temptation off, right? Uh, accountability with people, um, software that might help set up a firewall for you. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? And this next verse we need to remember. We need to, we need to like brand it on our hearts here. You are not your own. Next time you're tempted, remember that. You are not your own. You don't exist for pleasure. You are not your own. You were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. I thank you that in this story we don't see Jesus um, calling for this woman to be executed or, or talking down to her as, as, as if she's a, um, um, something dirty, but we see Jesus loving her and we see Jesus restoring her and, and, and commissioning her to, to live a different life and giving her that grace even. And so Lord, I, I pray that for us. Lord, we thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your blood. We thank you that you make us as, as white as snow, though our sins may be many. And they are many. They're, they're, they're more than we even recognize. We have been unfaithful to you. But we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who has not truly partaken of your grace, young or old, I pray that right now, in, in their heart, they would just call out to you and acknowledge that they have been unfaithful to you. They have sinned against you. And yet, you've sent Christ. Lord, help them to trust in him alone that, that he died on the cross for them and, and rose from the dead. And we'll receive them with open arms if they would repent and believe. Lord, we pray that we would recognize that we are not our own. Lord, we belong to you. So help us to glorify you this week with our body. Not just by... Um, not just by um, rejecting sinful temptation, Lord, but by taking this gospel of grace to others. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.